0: Hey, everybody, my name is Erica, and you are listening to Let's Be Real podcast, and I'm glad that you have joined me today. We are going to begin in a study on the book of Ruth. So locally here in the Waukesha, Wisconsin area, I am currently teaching a five-week study in advanced biblical studies on the book of Ruth, and there are many people that are not able to join me in person and have asked, hey, will you record it so that I can listen in? So that is what I'm doing I'm hoping it is as engaging in a podcast as it is in person when we're able to have discussion and dialogue. I'm not sure if it will, but we are going to give it a go. In the show notes, I am going to post and include the slides that I have been using in the class. So feel free to take a look at those, assuming you're not driving while you're listening to your podcast, and feel free to follow along in this study of Ruth. So week one is a background of information based on verses one through five. We have not gotten very far into this short book of Ruth, but we are just touching on some background information that will hopefully help us add to the understanding of the story as we continue to go through it. I'd like to start out with a quote by a man named Daniel Block. Few books of the Bible have captured the imagination of readers and hearers like this book. With its sensitive portrayal of women in crisis, its powerful portrait of a righteous man And its profound theology of providence, it offers hearers in every age a window into life in the ancient Near East, yes, but also inspiration for good and godly living. It gives us a reason to wonder at the ways of God and his grand plan of redemption, and to wonder at the plan that underlies Israel's royal and messianic hope. He really summarizes all of the things that we are going to see and that we're going to touch on in the book of Ruth, but I think he's got it right when few books of the Bible have captured the imagination and readers and hearers like this book. We see so many takeaways out of the book of Ruth. We tend to take scripture and try to find ways to apply it to our life right now, how we live. What's the application? What can I learn here? How do I make my life better? When we have to be just so careful to not read scripture in our Western lens and our Western line of thinking, but more along the lines of the Eastern, ancient, Near Eastern Hebrew line of thinking is what does this teach me about God? So let's not put ourselves in the story, but let's see what is revealed of God and his plan and his providence in this short book of Ruth. So what's the significance of the book of Ruth? Ruth is actually functioning as the first chapter in the story of Israel's royal and messianic hope. Chapter 4, verse 17 shows us, right, that it's the purpose of this book is elevated beyond just a personal human interest story. It's not just a story to entertain us in the life of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, but that it is actually, it changes into this first chapter of the life of David when we see the genealogy. The whole book of Ruth really points to and confirms the providential control of the world and of also the affairs of individuals and how God is part of all of that. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, they are written, we are shown, and we see them as models of hesed for the hearers to emulate. Hesed is going to be a key word in this book, and we will talk much more about it as we continue to move on. Let's touch on authorship of the book of Ruth. We actually don't know. We're very uncertain on who wrote the book of Ruth. Ancient Near East authors, they don't sign their work. We don't actually know who writes things unless it's indicated in the writing itself or others have indicated through other writings in Jewish traditions or referring back to it. Scribes would have signed the copy work that they have done, but ancient Near East writers, writers of the Old Testament, don't sign their work. We do see in more of the Greco-Roman style of writing in the New Testament, we see authors say things like, I, Paul, a servant of Christ, right? Or I, Peter, or James, the brother of Jesus. So a lot of times they would identify themselves in those books. So we don't really know who wrote the book of Ruth. Jewish tradition would hold that Samuel was the author of both Judges and Ruth. Samuel as in 1st and 2nd Samuel. However, many, many names have been proposed it has been proposed that it may have been a female author due to the fact that it is really a story written about a woman in crisis from a female perspective as you're looking at both not only Naomi but Ruth as well Tamar David's daughter has been suggested to be one of the authors because we know that the story is written from the future looking backwards because we see the genealogy of the line of David at the end of this chapter there is no evidence to show that it was a female author, that it was written by Tamar David's daughter. We we just long story short, we do not know who wrote it. There's also much debate on when it was written. It wasn't post-exile because there are some literary devices that are both classic Hebrew and late Hebrew and they use all of that to think it's maybe written much later. We don't know for sure when And how late, but we do know that it's following David because we see the genealogy of David and we know it's looking back. So it is written as a retelling of a story, as a history for a very specific person. We know it's written later. We just don't know exactly how late. And while there is debate on when it is written, there's much less debate on when it took Place In verse 1, we see that the book of Ruth took place in the time when the judges were judging, when they were ruling. We see there was a time of famine, which is echoed in Judges 6, 3 through 4. And it is most likely taking place at the time of Gideon, when he was on the scene. If you can recall, in the story of Gideon, he was living in a time of famine as well. He was hiding in a cave when the angel of the Lord came to him, threshing wheat, trying to hide And stay away because, why were they having such a problem with food? It was because the Midianites kept attacking, kept coming over into the promised land, taking their food, raiding them of their food and of their animals and leaving again. So we see this, we know we're in the time of the judges, and in the time of the judges we do see a famine taking place roughly around Judges 6. Let's talk a little bit about the canon of the book of Ruth, being where Ruth is in the canon of scripture. So, our English Bibles, which are based off of the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, for anyone in Rome, think New Testament writers, they were reading the Septuagint, the Old Testament, the whole complete Jewish Bible, the Torah all written in Hebrew and Aramaic, translated into Greek so they could read it. The Septuagint is what most of our English Bibles are translated off of. And in the Septuagint, Ruth is placed directly in between the books, Judges, and Samuel. And it's written and put there to fill a historical gap. Now, Jewish tradition in their Bibles, they have it in a couple different places. It is either before the book of Psalms, which then makes Psalms, right, this royal Davidic book, once it would finish with the line, the genealogy of the line of David, and then roll right into the book of Psalms written by David. It could also be after the book of Proverbs. and Proverbs 31, right, is showing a noble woman, and then it rolls right into the story of Ruth, who is called in the book of Ruth a noble woman. The book of Ruth is one of five megalotes in scripture. Megalot is a small scroll that is used in worship. In each one of these megalotes, they're associated with one of the festivals in the Hebrew and Jewish religious tradition. And Ruth is actually read aloud. They're all read aloud at these festivals in religious remembrances. And Ruth is read aloud at the festival of Shavuot. could also be called the festival of weeks and also known as Pentecost, which is coming up in June for us. But that festival would have been right at the time of the barley harvest. So Ruth takes place during the barley harvest, and it is read aloud at that festival. And it would be read aloud as whole, beginning to end, as part of just worship. So let's talk about some of the characters. This book is called Ruth. So we'll start with Ruth, but Ruth is not even the main character of this book. This book is really a story about the life of Naomi, Ruth is Naomi's daughter in law. She is a despised foreigner. She is a Moabite from the land of Moab. Her name means friend. Another interesting fact is Ruth is a book written in the scriptures, written and titled after a woman. And there's only two it's Ruth and Esther. Now I'm going to take a small little rabbit trail here and mention that the book of Ruth really is a book that is considered a book of comparisons. We're going to compare Ruth and Esther real quick, but it's also written in place where it's smack in between Judges and Samuel. If you haven't read Judges lately, Judges is messed up and it is gruesome and it is brutal and it is showing the life of completely unrepentant Israelites at times until a judge is raised up because of their cries and the Lord brings them back to himself and then they just fall into horrendous disobedience once again. And the story of Ruth taking place during the time of the judges really is to show this comparison of what righteousness looks like, what love and loyalty looks like in the time of such apostasy. And we'll be able to look at some more of these comparisons as we go through the book But so much of Hebrew writing is to be able to see these repeated themes, to see what's going on in history, to be able to compare and contrast. And we see that with Ruth and Esther, the only two women with books named after them in the scripture. And Ruth is only one of two Gentiles that a book is named after, the other one being Job. But as for Ruth and Esther, some of the comparisons between the two is that we see Ruth is a Gentile among Jews, while Esther is a Jew among Gentiles. Ruth is a daughter of a foreign nation brought into the promised land, while Esther is a daughter of the promised land brought out to a foreign nation. Ruth marries a Jew. Esther marries a Gentile. God is mentioned only a few numbers of times in the book of Ruth by its characters. In the book of Esther, God is mentioned zero times. However, Both of these women are women of great faith. They are both blessed by the God of Israel and they both play pivotal roles in salvation history. This book really is about Naomi. Naomi, her name means pleasant, at least in the beginning of the book. We see her leave named pleasant and when she comes back, she tells her community, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Her husband, Elimelech, his name means, my God is king. In the Hebrew culture, names were a big deal. You named your children a name of deep meaning to you and to your family and to your faith. Kind of like Joshua, right? As my God saves. Here we have Elimelech, my God is king. Like names were rich. You would give your children names that were deep and meaningful. So when I mentioned his two sons, Machlon and Killian, And the fact that their names mean weak and failing, I think it's fair for us to say, and based on literary devices, to acknowledge that that was most likely not their names. Because what parents in a culture where names mean everything are going to name their two sons weak and failing? We believe this is a literary device of the author Probably didn't even know the son's actual names to describe what's going on to give a deeper understanding and picture into the story of those who are reading it. We also see Orpah, her name means Stiff Necked. Orpah is the daughter in law that does not go back to Bethlehem with Naomi but returns home. So we see these names of those three characters, meaning phrases and terms that describe them as people. And last but not least, to the character of Boaz. A lot of times Boaz is seen as like one of the main characters. He's like the knight in shining armor, prince charming. He is indeed described in chapter 2, verse 1, a man who is a noble man. He is not the main character, and the story is not about him, but he does play a very big role. He represents the wings of God in the later part of chapter 2 when he is taking care of Ruth and Naomi and being a kinsman redeemer. Again, in a book of contrasts, we are seeing a man of righteousness in the time of complete apostasy. We know in Deuteronomy, Moses is giving the law and the rules that people are to follow, to be guided by the Torah as Israelites. And we don't see it happening in the book of Judges a whole lot, but we do see it in the life of Boaz. We see him being driven by the Spirit and guided by Torah. Deuteronomy gives rules, gives laws when it comes to gleaning, when it comes to levirate marriage, which we'll talk about in the future, when it talks about kinsman redeemer, what that looks like in the Hebrew culture. Deuteronomy 16.20 says, Righteousness, only righteousness shall you pursue. Righteousness is what embodied the covenant that Moses is given, and we see that in the life of Boaz. He embodies that righteousness for the king of Israel, for this line of David, and then Josiah later, and that we see it fulfilled perfectly by Jesus, this line of righteousness. We see in Boaz, as well as Naomi and Ruth, glimpses of personal piety, and it's this term which we will get very familiar with this Hebrew word called hesed. It's the key word of this book. Now, the Hebrew language is a pretty word-poor language in that they don't have many words and they can mean a lot of things. And one word can have a very deep, full-bodied picture to the word. And hesed is one of those words. It's kind of like shalom. Shalom is a word that can be translated peace, but it's a much bigger picture than that. So Hasid, we're really looking at all the positive attributes of God. We're seeing acts of devotion, loving kindness, and these actions that arise from the heart. They go far beyond the requirements of duty or law. We see it in actions of love and covenant faithfulness, in mercy and grace and kindness and loyalty. This is Hasid. It is this whole big picture. And we see Hasid in the life of Boaz, in Naomi, in Ruth. Hasid is a powerful word, and it's one that we as Gentiles we need to get to know a little bit because the Old Testament uses it, scripture uses it often. The word Hasid is used eight times in the book of Ruth. People with Hasid don't act because they're commanded or that they have to. It's an expression of complex passions that really govern their response to God. It is a life of faithfulness and devotion. Interesting note, Hasid in plural is Hasidim. This is where we actually get the phrase in Hasidic Jews. The divine quality of Hasid we see it in not only Boaz, but we see it applied to Ruth, the character outside of the covenant, the Gentile. This is key. We're going to talk about it, that there's a Gentile in the line of David. There is a Gentile, that is now, and described as having Hesed. this is big theological stuff that we'll talk about over the next couple weeks. We see Ruth risking her own well-being to go and glean, to be loyal to Naomi, to go along with Naomi's scheme. We see Boaz actually say of Ruth that she has demonstrated her last hased, her last kindness. We'll definitely dive more and more into that topic, because I really hope that that's going to be one of the real big takeaways that we're able to take from the book of Ruth and just see it in a really full way through this story. Some of the backdrop that we've sort of already touched on, but I want to make sure that we fully understand in Ruth 1 verses 1 through 5. It is taking place in a time when the judges ruled. And what I want you to be picturing when you hear when the judges ruled is, is not a judicial judge like we have, law and order type judge. I need you to see a military leader who would lead their nation in conquest and in war. This is taking place at a time of famine. Famine back in Deuteronomy 28, in terms of life in the promised land, there's all of these rules of the law that are given in Deuteronomy, and there are also all of these warnings of potential curses. If you don't obey follow and do these things, there are curses that can befall on you as Israelites in the promised land. And one of those curses could be famine being used as the judgment of God as a natural consequence or punishment for disobedience. A judgment that's really used to try to call them back to God. So what we see here, this famine taking place in judges, especially in a time where we can see they're very clearly not following the Torah law. It's very reasonable to assume that the famine that they are experiencing is in terms of judgment from God. And we talked about previously that the famine that they are experiencing is most likely that of the Midianites of raiders. We don't have any historical or biblical documents saying that it is a famine of weather or of pestilence. There's no reason to necessarily think that it was a natural phenomenon or an occurrence, although many, many do. So that is definitely an option. And even if that were the case, it really just shows that God works in so many ways, including through the weather. So the story, the family of Elimelech, they are leaving the town of Bethlehem of Judah. This is an important place that I want to touch on real quick. It probably rings some bells. You probably recognize it from another story that we will also get to, Bethlehem of Judah. But there's something I need you to know about Bethlehem. The Hebrew word Bethlehem is Beit Lechem, Beit Lechem means bread house. It means it's a storage house. It's a place uh, where food and grain was stored. It was a granary. Towns, villages, lands, all had a Bethlehem. There were many Beit Lechams all around the region. So we pay attention when we see the word Bethlehem as to where it is. And we are going to see throughout this story, it is Bethlehem of Judah. They leave as sojourners. Elimelech takes his family and they sojourn to the land of Moab. But both of these things are Important, and we'll briefly touch on the fact that sojourn is a is the Hebrew word gur G-U-R. It's really just defining the fact of what you probably already assumed to the word sojourn in our understanding. It's a temporary leaving. He's not planning on moving. This isn't forever with full intention to go there for a while and to return. But the important point for them in this ancient Near East culture is that This isn't a moving, this isn't a change of loyalty or allegiance. They're not becoming Moabites. They are sojourners. It is temporary. They are still loyal to the God of Israel. However, they have gone to Moab. Now, Moab is being described as the country of Moab, the land of Moab. The author is writing, looking back, and describing the area to which they went at the time as Moab. However, In early Judges and before the Israelites even go into the promised land, Moab is conquered and taken over by both Reuben and Gad. They fight together. Moab is no longer a nation. However, there are Moabites who live. So when we hear that they left and went to the land of Moab, it's kind of describing this whole region to the east of the River Jordan. We have the plains of Moab. We have the nation of Moab. These are phrases that are used because that's what everybody would have known and understood this area to be called, the area of the Moabites. However, it was not currently the nation of Moab during the story of Ruth. But there were Moabites living there. Interesting thing we should know about Moab and the Moabites as it comes out of a place of incest. If you recall back in Genesis 19, the story of Lot and his daughters as they leave Sodom when it's being destroyed. Lot's wife looks back. She is turned into a a pillar of salt. She dies and now it's Lot and his two daughters. And they go and they live in a cave and the daughters are beginning to freak out like, oh my goodness, there's no future for us. We need a family to sustain us. So they get their father drunk, and over a course of a couple nights, they take turns sleeping with him, and they both conceive and give birth to sons. One, the father of Moab, and the other, Amnon, so the Moabites and the Ammonites. So Moab is a people group. It was a nation built on incest, and it really doesn't get a whole lot better there. From there, in the land and the people of Moab. Last word I want to touch on in the beginning, this intro of verses 1 through 5, is the phrase Ephrathites. Elimelech and his family are being described as Ephrathites. A couple things about that word, Ephrathites. What we don't mean here is that he was part of the line or the family or the tribe of Ephraim. That is not what this word is referring to. So the word Ephrath is used as it's actually referring to, it's an earlier name for Bethlehem. We see in Genesis 35 that Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Lechem. This phrase Ephrathite being used to describe Bethlehem throughout scripture, why is it being used to describe Elimelech and his family? So it's being described to distinguish them from other Hebrew families. They indeed live and come from Bethlehem. But one of the other thoughts behind it is that it's a nickname that is used to describe a certain Hebrew clan. The word Ephrath is not formal, but it's a nickname, and it means something like fruitfulness or abundance. It was actually a word that was often applied to a town or general area because it was unusually fertile, um, and it was known for the quality of its produce and how well things grew there, so we can use that in our understanding of Bethlehem. But because in the Hebrew language and their culture... They give names to people that are usually fairly common words. Like we touch, talked about before, Lamelech, right? My God is king and how these words um, are very important. And we see those named, um, some women in the form of that word. We also see this Beit Lechem, this Ephroth, this meaning of fruitful abundance, ascribed also to a particular clan. So like a Limelech, a clan of abundance. Probably meaning that the clan of Lamelech was known for their wealth, based on farming. So they were given that nickname and they were known and renowned as the Fruitful Clan living in Bethlehem. So just as we might look at a wealthy family in a small town, we would identify Elimelech and his family in that same regard. And I think this is an important bit of information because many times the discussion has gone, why was Elimelech and his sons, why were they punished? Why were they killed in Moab? And a lot of the discussion revolves around the fact that Oh, they were killed, they died because they took Moabite wives. Well, scripture actually, the commandment is for the people of Israel not to take Canaanite wives. And while some will extend that to include all pagans, scripture doesn't come out and say that. And the Moabites would indeed be pagans like the Canaanites, but scripture says, do not marry a Canaanite. So that is what I am going with. But we see this family that is this wealthy landowner family in a small town, they are leaders, they are looked up to, they are farmers, and we see a famine, a way where that is how they make their money, that is where their security lies, that is where their notoriety and their influence is, and now they don't have it. And they leave to go elsewhere, where there's not a famine, probably to continue to grow and to make money and to secure their future. So what the punishment appears to be from is that they left their land. They left the promised land and went to the region where Moabites lived. They left as leaders because they thought they knew better, that they could maybe control the situation, that they could protect their wealth. They were really fleeing God's judgment, which we talked about earlier, famine as judgment. They didn't trust God, they trusted themselves. I think we can probably all relate to this idea, this picture, and this concept of trying to control our own future and fleeing God's judgment. I want to read from a Jewish commentary for you. It's called Genesis Rabbah 28. This is not scripture. This is a Jewish commentary, so take it with a grain of salt and whatever you would like, but I found it interesting our rabbis taught that it was not permitted to go forth from the land of Israel to a foreign country unless one seah is sold for two seyahs, a seah being a unit of dry measurement, roughly about two gallons. And in this case, it would mean that prices for food are twice what they should be, but not completely unaffordable. I think we can actually relate right now with inflation. Food has gone way up. Continuing on in the commentary, it says, Rabbi Shimshon said, this is permitted, being leaving the land of Israel, is only permitted when one cannot find anything to buy. Even when one is able to find something to buy, but even if it is one seah costs a selah, and a selah is a very hard Hebrew word to define, but as it's used here, it means an extensive Bible teaching, or it's a profound religious instruction that one literally pays dearly to obtain. So you are paying almost everything to obtain your food. Even then, one must not depart. And so said Rabbi Shimon bar Yufai, Elimelech, Machlon, and Kilion were among the notables of their generation, and they were leaders of their generation. Why were they punished? Because they left the land of Israel for a foreign country. So Jewish tradition, that commentary is pointing out that, hey, there were rules in place that we followed (laughs) that you were, when you were allowed to leave the promised land, we have seen others throughout the Old Testament leave the promised land because of famine. And we'll talk about that more next week. But what they're saying is that the family of Elimelech suffered such consequence because they were fleeing God's judgment. It was very clear that you were not to leave. I mean, we do see Gideon with food, with grain in the cave, if this is indeed happening at the time of Gideon. So it's not that there was no food. It's just that it had gotten very expensive and they needed to protect their wealth in their own eyes. So let's quick talk about the purpose of the book of Ruth. I have five for you. One, to provide a genealogical link between the tribe of Judah and David. Two, to show that there was faith and obedience even in the terrible time of apostasy during that book of Judges. Three, to illustrate the concept and to show us a picture of the kinsman redeemer in action. Four, to show that God's grace was not limited to Hebrews but also could be extended and was extended to Gentiles. And fifth, to establish the superiority of the house of David as a permanent successor to the house of Saul. So after Saul the first king of Israel dies, David does not immediately become the king of Israel. So what happens is there's some, there's some division and loyalty problems. David becomes the king of Judah, the two southern tribes, while the house of Saul and his son maintain the northern tribes. But this is not completely agreed upon. There's political unrest because of this. So as the author is looking back and writing that story, it's really to help paint the picture of like, hey, the kingship belongs to the line of David. And here is proof. Saul, you're out. David is in. So it's really part of a bigger political unrest and disagreement that is taking place. that is going on in the future, and that is part of the purpose of the book of Ruth. And last but not least, the genre of the book of Ruth is it's a drama, and not a drama in that it is a, that it's fiction, and it's this movie, and this story that would be on stage. It is indeed non-fiction. We see it anchored in historic times, with people, And places. There are no literary devices in the book of Ruth that would show that this author was writing a fictional story. If you've listened to my episodes on the book of Jonah, that's a very different story. We actually see many literary devices taking place in the book of Jonah that shows that it is a narrative parable rather than a straight up nonfiction. Story. The book of Jonah has no specific time marks or characters. It doesn't even say the name of the king at the time. We're here, we have specific historic times, people, and places. So this is indeed nonfiction. It's a narrative. We have our introduction in the first five verses of chapter one, we have a complex narrative account. Through the rest of one, two, three, and most of 4, and right at the end of 4, verses 18 to 22, we conclude with a genealogy. In this drama kind of setting, we'll look at it as an intro, a conclusion with four acts of a play in between. Act 1, we would see take place in the land of Moab, and this could be called the emptying of Naomi, and more deeply to be seen as something called the crisis for the line, for the line of David. Right. Act 2 takes place in the field of Bethlehem. This is Ruth's first encounter with Boaz. This is where we start to see a little bit of a ray of hope for the line of David. Act 3 takes place at the threshing floor. This is Ruth's second encounter with Boaz. And now we have a little bit of a complication for the line, hence the drama. For in the town of Bethlehem, we see the refilling of Naomi. We see a resolution of the crisis. And then it goes ahead and it closes out with the all important conclusion and genealogy of the line of David. I hope that information just wasn't too boring. I hope you found some interest in it. This is important information to help lay the groundwork as we look at the next four chapters over the next couple of weeks. I hope you'll come back and join me. Follow along as we continue into this important get small book of Ruth